Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside my parents' basement, it is the Masson All Access Podcast brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope that from wherever you're tuning in, you're safe, you're healthy, and you're with your family. In just a bit, we're going to have Anders Jorstad, who is the new voice of the Frederick Keys, to talk about Blaine Knight, who is one of our 20 in 20s. Then we're going to have MassonSports.com's Steve Molesky on. He's going to talk about Alexander Webb. Our other 20 in 20. But first, let's get to Ben McDonald, former number one overall pick. And he has covered a lot of these guys that might be taken with the number two overall pick in the draft in three weeks by the Orioles. Here's Ben McDonald. Now we're joined by Orioles broadcaster and former Orioles pitcher. Ben McDonald joins us here. Ben, thanks so much for hopping on Zoom. Hey, man, I'm glad to be here. I'm figuring out all this internet stuff, Zoom stuff. So good to talk to you. <laughs> talk to somebody back from the Baltimore area and hopefully I'll be seeing you guys sometime soon. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned you don't even own a computer. You're just working with an iPad at this point. I don't think any of us were prepared to work from home for this long. <laughs> no, you're right about that. I'm figuring out a lot of things that I didn't know anything about. I still know <laughs> much about anything, but uh, we figured it out anyway. Yeah, well, I think MLB front offices are in the exact same position. Um, and look, they, they have been in a position where they have been without baseball for an extended period of time, but it hasn't been since 1994-95 when you were a player. What kind of memories do you have of the strike and how you as a player kept yourself busy and in shape during a difficult time in baseball history? Well, there's a lot of similarities, right, with what happened in 94 and what's going on right now. Um, you know, we were sent home in 94, expected to stay in shape, hoping that the collective bargaining agreement would get done in the near future. We'd be back to playing baseball. I think the players today were sent home hoping something quickly would happen uh, and they would stay in shape and be ready to go. Now it's gone a lot longer than anybody thought whenever I think camp broke this year. And of course the 94 season ended up being, being canceled. And so was the postseason. and on into the 95 season was late getting started as well. So a lot of similarities, the only difference I think for the players now more difficult for today's players, because, you know, in our time in 94, we had access to baseball fields and, facilities to stay in shape, to keep our throwing and our hitting programs going, our workout routines. Not everybody's had access uh, with what's going on uh, with the pandemic now. Not, not everybody's had access to gyms and catchers and workout facilities. So guys have had to get creative on how to stay in shape and, and, and stay ready to go. So when this season begins going, we'll have a short spring training we can get going. So I see some similarities, but a lot of differences too. And the biggest thing, as you know, is the uncertainty of working out every day not knowing if something's going to happen or not. Now, I feel more confident ever uh, that the MLB season will get started at some point in time this year just with the results that I'm seeing and some of the numbers that are coming out. It seems that we're starting to get over this, but obviously a lot of common sense has got to be used in all this thing. But I feel certain we're going to see some type of baseball this year. Not sure where it's going to be and what it's going to look like, but it's going to happen this year. That would be great news, and I'm sure we could all use it. You are probably missing baseball 
more than just about anybody because you're used to covering more than one season. You're covering uh, LSU baseball and, and college baseball uh, for ESPN, SEC baseball uh, during the season, as well as covering Baltimore Orioles baseball. Weird, weird circumstances facing all of these coaches and all of these programs as they have a whole crop of incoming freshmen as well as a group of guys that could be coming back with an extra year of eligibility. It's still months away, but what kind of impact do you think this weird hiatus and this these rule changes will have on top programs such as the SEC programs you're used to covering? Well, you know, it, it's going to affect everybody at every level. It's going to be a trickle-down effect. And uh, there's good news and bad news, of course, with what's going on in college baseball. As you mentioned, uh, the NCAA stepped in and said because of what's going on, everybody gets a year of eligibility back, which I think was the right move. Now, to me, the NCAA stopped a little bit short on that. Uh, I wish they would have expanded rosters. I wish they'd have maybe given an extra scholarship or two from get from the 11.7, maybe going up a couple of more to try to help all the players that are out there right now, you know, because as you mentioned, you know, if you were a program like a Vanderbilt, let's say, and you were expected to lose six players to the draft this year, and you had an incoming class of eight players coming in as high school seniors, and you were expected to lose one or two of those to the draft as well. You know, you could make it work, but now instead of losing six, to the draft that was on your current roster, because of a five-round draft, you may only lose one player. And now those eight kids that were coming in as high school seniors, well, you figure, well, we're probably going to lose a couple of those to a regular draft too. Well, now it's a five-round draft again. So all of a sudden, you end up with all these players on campus. Everybody gets a year of eligibility back. And the sad truth of it is, is that there's not enough roster space to accommodate everybody that's coming back. So the difficult conversations as of late has been with these coaches and the parents and saying, hey, I'm sorry. I know I promised Johnny a scholarship as an incoming freshman, but I don't have any room for him right now. He's going to have to find somewhere else to play. And I know you've been with our program. Maybe, Bobby, look, you've been with our program for a couple of years now. But, Bobby, I don't see a scenario with you playing here at Vanderbilt this year because we got some really talented players coming in. We're going to have to ask you to leave the program. So those are the difficult conversations that are going on right now. Now, the good news is, we're going to see college baseball and we're going to see the product on the field be as stout as we, as we have ever seen it in college baseball. There is going to be, I talked to one SEC coach the other day. He thinks there's going to be 40 big league players in the SEC conference only next year. That's how stout it's going to be. And it's going to be a trickle down effect too, because you got to remember this a lot of these players that are being asked to leave big time programs because we don't have room for you are going to end up at mid-majors, and they're going to end up at junior colleges as well because there's going to be a lot of kids out there that come from high school and say, you know what, I don't think I want to go to a Florida or a Vanderbilt or an LSU, and the shortstop I thought was going to get drafted, look, he's got another year or two of eligibility now. I don't want to go there and sit the bench. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to junior college for a year, and after one year of junior college, I can either be drafted or then I can sign back with a big D1 school if that's what I choose to do. So I think the junior colleges – are really going to make out big in this. That's a fascinating uh, perspective there because that's something that the average fan might not think of off the top of their head. Uh, but I want to get your thoughts also on this loaded draft class because you mentioned how loaded college baseball uh, could be next season. But for right now, it's looking like a five-round draft that will occur in June. But near the top, which is where the Orioles sit, holding that number two overall pick, 
lot of interesting and talented prospects are sitting there at this moment. The Orioles obviously don't have a full 2020 season of college baseball to evaluate these guys with, but you saw a lot of these guys while covering SEC baseball. Asa Lacey, uh, the pitcher, Emerson Hancock as well, Austin Martin, who's with Vanderbilt, the national champions. What can you tell us about those three guys in the top of this draft in particular with the talent that is there for the O's? Well, the great news for the Orioles is picking second, obviously, behind the Detroit Tigers. They're in a can't-miss situation, in my opinion. There are some really stout players right at the top. You mentioned them. Spencer Torkelson, who's over at Arizona State, who I saw in a regional last year, could very well be the number one pick. He's a big first baseman, can really hit the long ball. But for, for me, for the Orioles, they just have to decide, do they want to go with a pitcher or do they want a position player? You mentioned Austin Martin. He's probably the – best overall position player out there. He's a young man that can play third base, second base. He's at the University of Vanderbilt. Uh, He can even – some pro scouts translate his ability to the outfield because he can really run too. He has got a big motor. He can go, but he has got a slow heartbeat when it matters the most. And He performed well at the College World Series last year. That might be very well who the Orioles end up with uh, is Austin Martin Vanderbilt. But don't get away from the pitchers. If the Orioles are still wanting to add arms, and we know that the arms in this minor league system for the Orioles is definitely the strength the pitching staff is. If the Orioles want to go that direction, Asa Lacey at Texas A&M, a big left-hander, he's 6'4", 225, up to 97 from the left side. He is a stud. Now, he's not quite as polished as an Emerson Hancock, who's over at Georgia, who could very well be a top-five pick as well. The big right-hander Hancock in Georgia is an outstanding prospect, too. But Asa Lacey, to me, has real swing and miss stuff. And for me, he's a guy that's going to pitch a long time in the big leagues. So for the Orioles and Mike Elias, Brandon Hyde, I think they're going to get a really solid, solid pick. The Orioles, as we know, have some good picks coming up. I think they pick again in the early 30s, if I'm not mistaken. And so I think the Orioles are really going to add some strength to the organization. Just matters do they want to go with a pitcher or a position player with the second overall pick. Yeah, some great prospects right at the top of that board, as you mentioned. You, of course, were in the position of being the number one overall pick by the Orioles. What kind of memories do you have of draft day? And what do you think from your perspective, given this new, strange five-round draft, if you were in the same type situation, do you think your feelings about the draft would be a whole lot different uh, going in, would it might give you maybe give you a little bit more pause, knowing that baseball is currently on hold uh, at all levels, or do you think that you would be just as excited to get drafted, just as as ready to get into pro ball? Well, with only five rounds in the draft, you got to feel very fortunate if you hear your name called this year. There's no doubt about that. Back in my time, it was more than forty uh, rounds to the draft, which is what it typically is, you know, every year. So. Uh, that, that, again, is a difficult conversation, too, because, you know, we're used to adding 1,200 amateur players by the draft every year into minor league systems. This year, we're going to add about 150 kids is all we're going to add. So opportunities are being cut down to play professional baseball this year. And it looks like it's going to happen again next year with only 20 rounds in the draft next year, which is, to me, a much more fairer number. I wish it would have been that many this year, too. Major League Baseball has always pushed the – uh, go play ball initiative, right, and go out and play. But when you're cutting the draft to five rounds, it's almost telling a lot of young kids is, hey, there's not a whole lot of opportunities for you. So I wish it would have been more than that than what we're seeing uh, this year. I get it. But what's going on, I totally understand it. It's difficult for, for everybody, but I still would have liked to see the draft be 
a few more rounds of what it is to keep kids encouraged and youth league kids about playing baseball because we need them to play at the at the at the youth league level. We need to keep them going uh, to have that interest in playing major league baseball one day. Having said that, uh, you know, and, and one more thing that concerns me. Don't forget this. You probably saw this too. Back in 2019, there were 1,400 players that played at least one game in the big leagues tonight. 1,100 basically of those kids were drafted players that came into Major League Baseball and got to play in the big leagues. 46% of those kids, of those 1,100 that played in the big leagues, were drafted from the sixth round and later. Okay, so that means we're not even having a sixth round or later this year, too. So you're cutting out a lot of opportunities for kids that actually made it to the big leagues. Having said that, the time of the draft was different for me. I was at the College World Series. Uh, we were at LSU, and we were playing in the College World Series, and, and I remember I had to pitch game one of the College World Series, and the draft was at noon that day. So I had to go to a press conference at noon that day, then pitching a ball game at 4 o'clock that afternoon after being selected number one overall. So things have changed a lot. The draft was going to be in Omaha this year. It was going to be, before all this happened, you know, on an off day where it didn't affect players while they were actually playing, which I think is a wonderful move too. But all in all, it's still, if you hear your name called this year, it is a dream come true. It's an opportunity for you. Now, I know everybody's saying, well, they're not going to get their money this year. That's okay. They're going to get $100,000 this year, and they'll get the rest of their money the next couple of years, which, again, what's going on with the coronavirus, you get all that kind of stuff. But still, it's a dream come true to finally get drafted. Yeah, and uh, very different circumstances. Some of these kids will not have played in about five months. Meanwhile, you were playing a game the very same day as the MLB draft. Ben, (laughs) thanks so much for hopping on Mass and All Access. We really appreciate you taking the time, and hopefully we get to hear you on uh, broadcasts, Orioles broadcasts in the future, uh, maybe in 2020, but uh, hopefully at some point soon. I look forward to it. hope everybody back in Baltimore staying safe, and hopefully I'll see all you guys soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. MassinSports.com's very own Steve Molesky joins us via Zoom. Steve, thanks so much for hopping on here. You got it, Paul. So we're going to talk about Alex Wells, one of our 20 in 20s in just a bit. But first, I want to get your thoughts because the MLB draft is just three weeks away. The first round begins three weeks from today. um, And the Orioles obviously hold that number two overall pick. That That portion of the draft probably won't be affected by the changes being made to the draft, the fact that it's going down to just five rounds, um, but the later portion of the draft will obviously be affected. The Orioles, as it stands right now, will be making six picks in those five rounds. As weird as it might sound, every team is at a disadvantage because they're just going to have less talent to infuse in their system, but do do you think the Orioles having a little bit more uh, money at their disposal and more picks might have a slight advantage in this scenario? It's going to be interesting to see about the money, Paul, because, <clears throat> you know, that would really play out over more than five rounds. Uh, you would see money factor in uh, as six through 10, maybe even after rounds from 11 on, you could, uh, if you paid more than the, than the 125, that would go against money. So, uh, the budget would play out over where however many rounds you're going to have. It's only going to be five this time. So uh, I guess maybe most guys will get at or near their slot amount for those picks. That's just a guess. We'll see how it's going to play out. But, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. There are players who are who are they call pop-up players every year. And by that mean players who 
raise their stock dramatically in their last season, whether it's the junior year of college or a senior year of high school. Grayson Rodriguez is one who did that. Uh, he would not have been considered to be picked number 11 until he had that incredible last senior year. He had increased his body and he's really transformed himself into a, to a top talent. <clears throat> so uh, some of those guys sadly won't have that chance this year. And when you look at the the way that they could rise up through draft boards, it's not just the play on the field, but I feel like oftentimes it's the other stuff. It's the interviews that they get to have with the teams. It's the workouts that they may be doing. I remember last year the Orioles held special workouts at Oriole Park at Camden Yards where they were able to get an in-person view of some of these guys that they might not get otherwise. Do you think that these teams have access to information and are able to do some scouting on the side, considering that they don't have as many games to go by with these guys? Do you think they're still finding other ways to to get information, do Zoom interviews, whatever it may be, to get more information about these potential draft prospects? Uh, probably so. <clears throat> and I do think they changed the rules, I believe, a couple weeks ago where there could be some interaction with players where up until then there was not supposed to be. So I think they changed that. But um, – one thing the Orioles were going to do, and I'm sure all teams were going to do, let's say you're an area scout. Well, you would swap areas with video. In other words, uh, someone would kind of cross-check you and look at uh, a scout who might be in the mid-Atlantic, might be looking at West Coast players on video just to get – that's all they can do right now. They can't be at games looking at players, so they got to do something to make better use of their time, and it's just longer looks on video and uh, following more reports and uh, – and, you know, when it comes to the top players, even beyond the first round, uh, teams are scouting these players for years. So it's not like they just decided this year, let's go watch these guys. They, they might have watched them for years and years. In the case of an area scout, he may have been watching a kid play at 14. Who, who knows how clued in they are in their regions. They may have done that in the case of some guys. So um, they know them pretty well. They just didn't get a chance to get that look this year beyond – you know, colleges played maybe 15 or 20 games. So there were a few looks at players. And in terms of those pop-up guys as well, do you think that this could create a scenario where, I remember back in the NFL draft uh, several weeks ago, they were talking about, we may look down the line in several years and say, how did this guy fall to the fifth, sixth, seventh round just because of the lack of information about these guys and teams are less likely to take risks potentially on guys that they know less about. Could you see a scenario like that? Obviously it would be five rounds, but could you see a scenario where maybe a a great talent uh, lasts until the fifth round because teams are just less likely to take a risk on a guy that may have injury history or may have a, a lack of production and several years down the line, we're scratching our heads saying, how did that guy get taken in the fifth round? could happen and that that happens in the draft of 40 rounds because <laughs> a player drafted Paul at age 18 may be a completely different player at age 21 you know and and that's why there's a lot of projecting in the draft especially with a high school player you're drafting a kid at 18 what's his body going to be like at 21 is his maturity level going to be get better or worse is he going to work as hard as we think he is all these things you hope he's going to do but you don't know and then some guys just get better and no one can foresee that at boy at 21, we didn't think he'd be this when we watched him at 18, but he is. He just got better. He got bigger, stronger, faster. He learned more. Uh, the reps in the minor leagues, he learned how to hit a curveball. 
things happen that you can't predict in young talent. Even in the college guys, you have more of a body of work because they're 20, 21, 22. You've seen them longer, but he might be very different at 26 than he was at 22. So yeah. there's always some good fortune that happens. Guy got better that maybe was mostly him, not you. And so uh, that those are things you can't completely foresee. Yeah, and the, the draft is 40 rounds uh, for a reason. Like, <laughs> these teams get as many bites of the apple as they can because there are so many uncertainties, I feel like, um, in the MLB draft. Looking ahead to the 2021 draft, it could be as short as 20 rounds for next year. You have a ton of guys that are going back to college probably – this fall that might not be otherwise considering the draft is so short and is just five rounds plus the incoming freshmen and you have an extra year of eligibility available for all these guys if you want it so these college programs are going to be jam-packed with talent and if you have a draft in a year that's just 20 rounds could this kind of create a further log jam we're already going to have a log jam in college baseball in 2021 but could we get even more of a log jam if we have a, a draft in a year that's half as short or half as long as the normal draft? No doubt. I mean, that's kind of the prediction that the, that the draft next year could really be something because look at all the players who won't get drafted this year. That'll stay in the amateur ranks. And if you're a high school player graduating uh, I'm, and you're a top town, I would guess many are going to go the JUCO route. Because if you go to a four-year school like the University of Maryland or Nebraska or UCLA, you're, you can't leave after one year. But if you go junior college or community college, and there are many top programs, you can leave after one year. So I think top high school talent will look to do that uh, rather than maybe sign for 20000 after the draft. Next year, uh, 20 rounds at least. It could be more, but it will be a minimum we know of 20. Uh, so that's a better opportunity, and they go play and develop one more year somewhere and go back in the draft. Yeah, that's Ben McDonald. We just had him on the podcast. He mentioned the exact same thing. Great minds think alike. Uh, in terms of that future draft, at, let's say uh, it lo- it's looking at this point like they will play baseball in 2020. They're still gung-ho about that, and they still are optimistic that they will have some kind of Major League Baseball season this year, but if they don't, and you go ahead to the 2021 draft, how do you determine the draft order in that case? Uh, I, I'm sure these teams and the league doesn't want to think about it at this point, but they may have to the later we get into the season. The Orioles can't get the number two overall pick two years in a row just by their record in 2019, can they? Uh, no, <laughs> and, I, and I do think I think it's like you said, MLB is like we're gonna take table that until we don't have to, until we have to deal with it. Yeah. And right now, of course, obviously they are hoping to have a season. And if it happens that, uh, you know, they did not, they'll know they have time because this June is going to be this year's draft. And then they would have time leading up to next year to figure out some formula. I don't think they're just going to take the same order. Maybe there would be some lottery system or something. Uh, but that is what, based on what I have seen and read and heard, has not been determined yet how that would happen if it needs to happen. Gotcha. Well, yeah, that's that's one of those things they the bridges they hope they don't have to cross at some point. But in the meantime, they get a draft in three weeks, uh, and the Orioles have the number two overall pick and six picks. So that's exciting from their perspective. 
All right, Steve, let's get to 20 and 20, Alexander Wells. I got to get used to saying Alexander because he, like Stevie Wilkerson before him, changed his first name in the offseason going from Alex to Alexander, but Alexander sounds more regal. He is an Aussie. He was signed by the Orioles as an international free agent back in 2015, and he's currently rated by MLB Pipeline as the 15th prospect in the Oriole system, which honestly seems a little bit low considering he has dominated every stop he has made along the way in his minor league career. And Paul, I think that's directly tied to fastball velocity or lack thereof. And, you know, this is not new for Alexander. And to the lesser degree, maybe Zach Louther, they're similar lefties in that they throw, you know, um, 87, 88 to 91, 92 and you know, hitting around 90 most of the time, maybe 89, 88. So they're not blowing people away, but they just keep getting results. And I mean, this kid knows how to pitch. He is fearless. That's the word that's come up when I, whenever I interview managers or people in the system. He's not afraid to pitch inside. He's got a full repertoire, which he added to last year when he had almost never thrown a slider. So now he's got the basic fastball, slider, change, curve, mixes them in, doesn't walk hitters pitches inside the righties, and just keeps getting results. And last year was really big for him, Paul, because there are some scouts who I think thought double A will be when we finally start to see him struggle some. But, in fact, his stats got better than they were in Frederick, which was quite impressive. Yeah, Wells had an ERA just a tick below three. He had about 6.9 Ks per nine, which isn't a huge number, but – He made up for it with his impeccable command, walking just 24 batters all season long. See a ton of similarities between Wells and Lowther, those two lefties at the top of that Bowie Bay Sox rotation. A rotation that also featured Michael Bauman halfway through the year. You had guys like Dean Kramer going from the Bowie Bay Sox up to AAA Norfolk level. You also had Keegan Aiken at the AAA Norfolk level. You have this great group of pitchers that is sitting between the double-A and triple-A level in the Orioles system, of these guys that are right on the cusp of the major leagues, Steve, which one of these guys do you think could emerge and have the best big league career down the line? Uh, You know, it might be the guy they call Big Mike, Michael Bauman, because he's got uh, more fastball than some of those other guys we talked about. He's big, he's strong, he's durable. He's really soaking up some of the analytics and the data and the work they're doing with him between starts. And, uh, you know, he, he came into Bowie and he just burst on the scene, man. He had that no hitter against Harrisburg and he was just pretty much great from start to finish. And so there are probably a few little polishing things for Michael Bauman. His delivery can get a little out of whack, sometimes a big guy. So maintaining delivery can be an issue for him, but, uh, the, the staff loves his talent. And so uh, I think what's exciting, Paul, is that they do have a bunch of guys. And as you and I know, when he, if you have 10 pitching prospects, you might have three. They're going to flame out along the way. Or some will get injured. They won't progress, as you think. But some will. And if you get a good percentage, or even if it's a lower percentage, that make it all the way and can be successful, you have the makings of something. Well, Steve, one of our 20 in 20s many, many weeks ago was Ryan Mountcastle, of course, one of the top prospects in the entire Orioles system. You chatted with him recently. What did you learn from that conversation? You know, one thing I've enjoyed about it, Paul, is if you do a three or four minute interview with a kid, you gain a little bit. But when you sit down for 10 or 15 minutes, as you know, you get the chance to get into things. And I think we see personalities come out. And in recent interviews I've done with Grayson Rodriguez and Ryan Mountcastle, 
I think fans can see that there's more than just talent that makes these kids tick. I mean, in the case of Mountcastle, <clears throat> this kid is really low-key and relaxed. He fits in beautifully in the clubhouse. Um, he's respectful, but he also is confident in himself. He finds that right balance. And he's just really – he's driven. And he's, he's, there are more things to, to him than I think we think. You know, when I interviewed Gary Kendall last year after he was named uh, Orioles Minor League Player of the Year, he talked about the maturity he saw because he had him at AA and AAA, how he became a better teammate. And I asked Ryan about that during this interview. What does it mean to you to be a good teammate? How do you do that? And, you know, you could see things come through that um, he's more than a kid who just can go up there and mash a baseball. You know, that's part of his part of it. But all these other things, these little polishing things like leadership, like fitting in the clubhouse, like being a good teammate, being a good kid, they mean something. And when you have a talented kid and these other things come to work as well, that's when you really get excited. And when I see kids like Grayson and Ryan and, uh, and so many others on the Oriole Farm, I think, man, these kids have their act together. I thought the same thing about Trey Mancini when I interviewed him in Aberdeen, and I can feel it about some of these kids, and I think that bodes well. Well, that's awesome to hear, but Steve, we can't talk about Ryan Mountcastle without talking about his defensive position. You said he brought it up in your conversation with him. He came into spring training saying he was going to try any defensive position that the Orioles coaching staff threw at him, tried several defensive positions with Norfolk, where do you think he could play long-term in the bigs defensively? All right, I'll make a prediction here that we saw him in left field late last year and in spring, and he's going to be a left fielder. I think he looked very comfortable out there, Paul, in Florida in February and March. It's a very small sample, so we got to see a lot more. But Florida outfields are tough to play, man. The sun and the wind. And he looked pretty kind. He had one ball that he lost due to sun and wind that I remember, but he tracked down some difficult chances and I thought he looked good. It would be quite interesting, I think, to see an outfield if Trey, you know, Trey, we know is going to be out this year, maybe all of it, if they play the year of uh, Santander in right, Hayes in center, Mountcastle in left. Boy, that would be three young talents to just play and watch grow. Now, that would be skipping Ryan ahead of some guys in the pecking order, but at some point, that's how it happens in sports. If a kid's ready, he's ready. And I think Ryan's reaching that point. Yeah, he could be hopping guys like Cedric Mullins and DJ Stewart if he does do that. But considering how outstanding his bat was at the Norfolk level last year, certainly not out of the realm of possibility. An exciting outfield group for the Orioles in the years to come. Steve, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast. Uh, you got it, Paul. Thanks. Now we bring in Anders Jorstad, who is the new voice of the Frederick Keys. Anders, thanks so much for hopping on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are very familiar with the Keys, not because you covered them, but because you covered an opponent in Lynchburg. How did you come into the Frederick Keys community, and what did you know about the team and the franchise uh, before taking this position? Yeah, so Jeff Arnold, who held this position before me, was a good friend of mine. He left, obviously, has joined the Baltimore Orioles booth, and I had formed a good relationship with him. So between that and just knowing that the opening was there, it kind of helped me get uh, in touch with the people in Frederick, and the rest is history, as they say. But I'm very familiar with the Frederick area. Uh, my girlfriend's been from the D.C., uh, Baltimore area, and so this is kind of like a second home to me now. And how did you get started in broadcasting? You're a Seattle area guy, so Pacific Northwest, coming all the way to the Northeast. 
Where'd you get your start in broadcasting? How did you uh, move your way up through the ranks and and uh, eventually make it to high A ball? Yeah, so I was a big Seattle Mariners fan growing up in the Seattle area. I listened to guys like Dave Niehaus and Rick Riz uh, throughout my summers and kind of just inspired me to think, you know, I love baseball. These guys obviously love baseball. What's a way that I can make my love of baseball turn into a career? Um, and so when I went to college, I figured I would study journalism and that turned into broadcasting. And eventually I just kind of worked my way up, did a couple of summers in summer college ball where they send a lot of college prospects to uh, play during the summers and just kind of worked my way up, learned a lot of things and got in touch with some minor league guys and found a home here. And that, that summer college ball, I feel like obviously is a training ground for but some potential future big leaguers or future mm-hmm. pro players. But it's just it serves pretty much the same purpose for the broadcasters. I can't tell you how many play-by-play guys I know that have come through there. Um, and especially going, I mean, I feel like going the route of, not to get too much on a broadcaster tangent, but to knowing, <laughs> you know, uh, in terms of the play-by-play, I feel like if you want to do play-by-play, whether it be football, hockey, basketball, going through the baseball route is such a great idea because you're calling games every single day and you you have to fill time more than you do with any other sport, I feel like. Sure, and obviously they play more games in a baseball season than they do in a football season and in a basketball season. You know, if you compare the majors, um, 162 you know, major league baseball games is so much more than over just over a dozen, you know, football games in a season, or if you're even lower, maybe about a dozen or less than that. So you just have so many more opportunities to get out there and to broadcast on the air. So baseball really is the best way, even if it's not people's favorite sport to broadcast, it's the best way to kind of get experience. And as you were mentioning before, it's a slower sport. So it kind of forces you to fill time and find ways to get creative, especially when it's just yourself talking to yourself for three hours, seven days a week. That can get pretty tiring. Yeah, and as uh, Jeff Arnold, our good friend, showed us, if you can call games at any level, you can call games at the big league level. Like, you know, you never see a player go from high A to the big leagues, but for his promotion to go from high A to the big leagues was absolutely deserved just because he's so good at it. Um, It doesn't matter what level of the games that you're calling. So that, that is all fascinating to me, but I want to ask about uh, Blaine Knight because we've been doing these 20 and 20 series. You were with Lynchburg last year and you faced your team faced Blaine Knight, Uh, not his two best starts. Um, He obviously (laughs) started the season uh, down in Delmarva and then got the call up to high A. Um, was great for five outings in Delmarva before he got that call up, and he uh, struggled to start um, and and really just could not get his feet under him in Frederick. But in the two outings uh, in which Lynchburg faced Knight, what did you see from the guy who was a, a former college standout? Yeah, you know, the, two, the, the thing that really sticks out with him is that he's got two really good breaking balls, and that's not something you can always find, especially – from those starting pitching prospects. And so he's got a, a fastball and a couple of breaking balls with the slider and with the curveball. Those are really good building blocks for him to get going. And obviously a guy who came from a big program in Arkansas, third round pick, they knew what they were doing when they selected him. And you look at that one in 12 record, and I don't think it really indicates what he was able to do, especially toward the end of his season in Frederick. One of the big things that he struggled with was his command. Uh, he was walking a lot of guys, but in nine of his last 10 starts, he walked two or fewer guys in those starts. He started to strike out a lot more guys. And in a lot of those losses, 
he was only giving up one or two earned runs in five, six innings. But the problem was that Frederick was not able to back him up with any run support. And so with what he was able to do, you could see little stretches of him getting better as the season went on. I think that his first full season of baseball, obviously, is kind of a difficult adjustment for a lot of guys to make. And I would expect him to, to take a big step forward. He's a guy that you mentioned his college success. He pitched at Arkansas. Uh, pitched against an Adley Rutschman in the College World Series and started the first game of that College World Series uh, championship against Oregon State, was outstanding his final year there, and lost one game between Arkansas and uh, the his beginning of his pro career during 2018 when he was a third-round right. pick. So we know so often these guys, I feel like it's almost more the case when you have high schoolers who go directly into pro ball, but these guys are so used to dominating their specific level of play. Um, and he dominated the SEC, which is the premier conference for college baseball and got to that level and had such incredible success. Didn't take a loss in a single college game his final year. And then you hit a, a stumbling block. And it, I feel like that comes at, at some point uh, in every pro player's career. I mean, uh, you know, Adley Rutschman is going to hit a stumbling block at, at some point, sure. um, no matter how much success you have at a lower level. Um, but it, it's how you react to it. And the fact that he had so many wins, I mean, wins and losses obviously are, are a, a, a kind of throwaway stat nowadays, but he had so many wins and was used to dominating and then gets saddled with double-digit losses. Um but I feel like this upcoming season is is almost more important for him uh, than 2019 was just because you, we're seeing how he's responding to it and now how he's being able to look at his own tape, look at the level of play and make an adjustment and make a plan for it. Is that what you think? Yeah, and I think that him potentially getting to work with Adley this year, if they're able to, to work together uh, as they work their way up through the ladder, would certainly help them because you talk about a guy who's had a lot of college success just like Blaine, I mean, those two guys could really help each other out. And I think that's another big reason why the Orioles picked Adley is because they've got a lot of these promising pitching prospects. And he's a guy who's really good at working with those pitchers. And so you get a guy who knows how to work with those arms and kind of knows their tendencies. They played, you know, at kind of the same time there in college ball. So I think that he can kind of help Blaine and Blaine can help him figure things out as they move the way up the ladder. So really exciting potential uh, to watch them together play in 2020. In terms of the high A level, because you're familiar with it, obviously, um, I feel like it is sort of underappreciated or, or talked about less because when you see top prospects fly through the system, sometimes they skip that high A level. Um, and it is just kind of a strange middle ground between single A uh, and double A, which is a launching pad uh, for the bigs for a lot of guys. What do you think about the, the level of play in terms of high A? How much of a tick up do you think there is between a single A Delmarva and the kind of league that they're and competition that they're facing and the competition that a Blaine Knight, somebody might be facing once he gets that call up to high A? Yeah, I think there certainly is a difference that you notice when a lot of guys who do really well in single A get called up to high A. I mean, some guys who were doing really well in single A end up doing just fine in high A, but there are some guys who do face an adjustment because you're seeing a lot more college age guys. A lot of college age guys don't spend a whole lot of time in full season single A, but they will spend a lot of time in high A. So you're getting a lot more veteran guys, a lot more guys who you, you may even see more rehabbers at that level, which is another kind of difference that you don't necessarily have as much in single A. And so there is definitely that step up in competition that you can't really take for granted. And in terms of Frederick themselves, 
Delmarva had an outstanding, record-breaking 90-win season. Uh, Frederick kind of st- struggled somewhat, but there's a new coaching staff coming in. And you think about all the guys that are were in that Delmarva spot last year that could be working them their way up uh, throughout the Orioles system. You think of a guy like Grayson Rodriguez um, that could be getting the call up or an Adam Hall that could be making his way to Frederick if and when baseball returns for the Frederick Keys. What kind of excitement level do you have thinking about the top prospects that the Orioles have in the lower levels of their system that could be coming through Frederick within the next few months, hopefully? Yeah, obviously we didn't get any word on what the roster was going to look like for the keys coming out of spring training quite yet. But if you put the pieces together and kind of look at guys who ended well last year at uh, single A and guys who were here with uh, the keys last year, uh, as well, you kind of put together a pretty exciting looking roster. I mean, you mentioned guys like Adley, like Adam Hall, like those are potentially guys who could come together and play in Frederick this year. And it puts together a pretty exciting ball club because that's where a lot of the talent is in the Orioles organization right now with regards to their rebuild. So if you're looking for a place where a lot of these, the future Orioles are going to be, I think Frederick is one of those hot spots right now because you have a lot of those guys who are going to be coming up through the levels and potentially working together, as we were mentioning, wouldn't it be exciting to see a guy like Grayson Rodriguez throwing to Adley Rutschman? I mean, that's a potential combination that could be a winning one for the Orioles in the future. And in terms of your job with the Frederick Keys, you couldn't have gotten off to a stranger start considering you had just taken the job <laughs> and then all of baseball goes on a hiatus. What have your first few months on the job without baseball? What have they been like? Yeah, it's been an interesting one to be sure. I mean, a lot of it has been done. I mean, we've, put together a media guide. We've put together a lot of the game note stuff that we're going to have. And at this point, you know, fielding media requests and all sorts of stuff that's still going on. So it's just interesting the way that we're trying to put together these projects as well that we have on social media. Um, I've started a podcast recently with a bunch of players from Frederick uh, past and also present. So that's an exciting thing that we're working on. And at this point, we're just waiting and uh, getting ready for baseball in 2020. I feel like a lot of people don't uh, who aren't around minor league baseball on a daily basis don't fully understand the job of a broadcaster and media relations person. You are a true do-it-all. I mean, you are involved in, <laughs> as you mentioned, putting together a media guide. That's not the typical job uh, right. of a broadcaster at the major league level, but just kind of the things that fall under the scope um, of a broadcaster, I think is is uh, not appreciated as much as it could be. Um, but... I mean, do you enjoy some of those other aspects of the job as well um, in terms of just everything, the the catch-all nature of a broadcaster's job uh, in in minor league baseball? Well, first of all, thank you, Paul. You're too kind for (laughs) saying that we're underappreciated. But yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things that are exciting about this job. And that's what I like about broadcasting the minors is it's not just, you know, calling games on the radio, but, you know, you're doing all sorts of other things that are keeping you engaged. You're writing stories, you're Uh, working on marketing plans you're doing all sorts of other stuff and every broadcaster's job is a little bit different so some guys are doing sales some guys are doing marketing stuff I mean it's it's all kinds of different stuff and so it's it's kind of exciting to be able to do all that and feel like you're really involved in the organization and feel like you've got a big footprint in what's going on with the team so how have you been spending this time you mentioned the work stuff that you're doing other than the work stuff how are you occupying your day-to-day life during this baseball shutdown? You know, honestly, I've been doing a lot of reading recently. I've had a pretty big reading list that I've been trying to work through, and it's given me a lot of time to kind of sit down 
and do a lot of that. Every now and again, there's a, a book that comes out on baseball that I think is really exciting or, or really want to get into. I'm always really interested in what's going on right now in the game, the way the game is changing, the way that it's trending. So anything that comes out to that regard, I'm always excited to read. And right now I've got a chance to look into those kinds of things. You're a better man than I. I've just been sticking with <laughs> Netflix. Uh, I've, I've gotten into chess recently oh, with I've, my friend. That's, that's like been, the most academic of my pursuits. I've been watching plenty of Netflix too. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. um, awesome. Well, Anders, thanks so much for hopping on here. Hopefully we get to see you calling some games for the Frederick Keys um, at some point in 2020. But in the meantime, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Paul. That's all we got for the podcast today. Brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. Thanks to Ben McDonald, Steve Molesky, and Anders Jorstad for joining the pod today. Remember, stay home, stay healthy, stay safe. There's only one way we're getting through this, and that is together. We'll see you next week.